And I tell you, it's, it's an it's a awesome thing to know that these children are going to children's church, whether in the chapel or in the nursery area. They're going to be doing what we're doing right now. They're going to be learning about Jesus. So they're not just playing. They are studying. They are learning. They are worshiping in a way that's, that's appropriate for them at their age. And we're thankful for that. Well, as Ben said, we've been spending the past couple of weeks talking about God, focusing on the doctrine of God, what we believe about God. And our foundational truth is the idea that the God of the Bible is the only one true and living God. And that we can know Him through His attributes and His activities, through who He is, what He's like, and through what He does. And that this God has revealed Himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call this the Trinity. Uh, One God in three persons. And each person of the Trinity has unique personal attributes, but are of the same single divine essence, nature, and being. Three persons, one Godhead. And that's a little hard for us to understand, to wrap our minds around, but it is nonetheless a true and essential belief of Orthodox Christianity. And then we ended last week focusing on God the Father. We used the Lord's Prayer to discover what kind of Father God the Father is. How can we know Him through His attributes and His activities? What is He like? What does He do for His children? And Jesus revealed the Father to us through that Lord's Prayer. And He often did that through His teachings. But more than just through His teachings, Jesus reveals God the Father through every aspect of His life. In fact, John 1.18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. And even about himself, Jesus said when Philip, one of his disciples, asked him, show us the Father, listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 9 through 11. He said, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So what Jesus tells us here is that He reveals the Father to us both through who He is, Jesus is God, just the same as the Father is God, but through what He does, through the works themselves. In other words, we can know God's attributes and activities through Jesus. Jesus shows us what God is like, and what He does. So let's look today at Jesus, at God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And, and, and again, as I've said the past two weeks, that's a tall order for one sermon, right? One sermon to cover Jesus. Well, thankfully, you know, I do preach about Jesus from time to time. You know, so it's not just one sermon, I've got to get this in. And, and, you know, we spent a lot of last year walking with Jesus through Mark's Gospel. And, and the entire Bible whispers... His name. I like the way the Bible Project puts it. We believe the Bible is one unified story that points us to Jesus. Uh, John Broadus, who was uh, one of the, the founding pastors of the Southern Baptist Convention, he wrote, Jesus is the center of the Scriptures. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Him. Everything in the New Testament proceeds forth from Him. So, so that takes a little pressure off the need to try to say everything there is to say about Jesus in one sermon. Amen? I'm not going to do that. 
Uh, but let's look at what the Baptist faith and message say, excuse me, says about God the Son. Christ is the eternal Son of God. In His incarnation as Jesus Christ, He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon Himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying Himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by His personal obedience. And in His substitutionary death on the cross, He made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to His disciples as the person who was with them before His crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God where He is uh, the one mediator, fully God, fully man, and whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate His redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Jesus, for who He is, for all that He came to do for us. And as we look into Your Word, we pray that You would reveal Him more and more to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a lot of passages we could look at today uh, on God the Son, and I'll certainly reference some of those key ones, but I want us to use Paul's Christological passage found in Philippians chapter 2 to kind of give us a 30,000-foot overview of God the Son. So turn with me, if you will, to Philippians 2. Let's begin in verse 6. Right, actually in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. The first thing that Paul points out to us is Jesus' divinity. He is the eternal Son of God. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this passage, so let's look closely at what Paul is saying about the divinity of Christ. There in verse 6, he tells us first that Jesus is eternally God. It says, existing, Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God. Now, in the Greek, that word existing is a present participle, which means it's a state of continuous being. Jesus has always existed, is now existing, will always exist. So from eternity past, from before the foundations of the world, Jesus has always been God. He always will be God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Paul writes about this some more in Colossians chapter 1. He says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, He says, uh, For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is eternally God. He is co-equal with The Father, He is present and active in the creation of the world, and He's the one who holds all of reality together. Jesus is our Creator. He is our Sustainer. Now, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he isn't talking about the origins of Christ. 
because God has no origin. The term firstborn there can mean first in honor, importance, and rank. So just like we might think of the firstborn son as the son who might inherit the family business. He is, he, he's the, the eldest. He's got the authority. That's what Paul is referring to here. It's not or, about his origin. It's about his position, his rank. Jesus is the eternal king. But Jesus also is essentially God. He's eternally God. He's essentially God. The phrase in the form of is the Greek word morphe, from which we get words like morphology and metamorphosis. And it's only used three times in all the New Testament, including here. So morphe means an outer manifestation of something's true inner essence. The NIV uses the term very nature. In very nature, in Jesus' outer manifestation just reflects an inner essence. So, so from the inside out, Jesus is God. Hebrews 1, 3 puts it this way, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. God, Jesus is God in essence, in nature, in being. And, and this is essential for our understanding of God the Son. Jesus is eternally God. He is in essence. He is essentially God. And Jesus is equally God. When it says that He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, that word equality means the exact copy, the equivalent of, the same as. Jesus has always been exactly the same as and equal to God. In His very essence, nature, and character, Jesus is God. John writes and begins his gospel with this truth. He says in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. So in Jesus, we get to see exactly what God is like in form and essence. They are one and the same. Jesus is the visible, physical manifestation of the invisible God. And Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that Jesus didn't consider this equality with God as something to be exploited, or your translation may say, uh, to be grasped. Now, this is one of the, the most debated words in all of the Bible because it's only used here. It's the only place this Greek word is used. As, as we'll see, Paul liked, liked to use obscure Greek words in his writings. So we have to look outside the Bible at other Greek literature to get an essence of what this word means. And it can be translated as rob or steal, hold by force, snatch away, plunder, cling to, or grasp. The, the, the sense here is that Jesus, God the Son, never considered using His equality with God the Father for His own advantage. He, he never uh, held on to it as if He feared it was something He could... Lose. He wasn't going to use it as an excuse to get out of fulfilling his mission to die on the cross for our sins. You know, some people, you know, might use their authority to try to get out of a speeding ticket, maybe, you know. Don't you know who I am? I'm somebody famous. I'm somebody important and powerful. Paul is saying Jesus never did that. He never used his equality with God to his own advantage. And this brings us to verses 7 and 8, that Paul starts focusing on Jesus' divinity. He is in every way God, equal with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is God. He is divine. But then Paul moves us to Jesus' humanity. You look at the incarnation of the Son of God. Look at verse 7. Instead, He emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant, 
taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now, at Christmas and Advent, we focus a lot on this, on the incarnation of the Son of God. He took on human flesh. He was born in Bethlehem. And Philippians 2 is a great passage to help us kind of look past the the manger and the shepherds and the swaddling clothes to see the true cosmic depth of what was happening on that holy night. Something so profound. In fact, I would say it is the greatest event in all of human history. The Creator entered into His creation. Divinity took on humanity forever. God didn't come just to dwell with us temporarily. He came to dwell among us forever in that moment. And the full meaning of what Paul said in verse 6, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or grasped. That is realized in this, the humanity, the incarnation of Jesus. So Paul starts by describing what it means for Jesus to be God, but now he's going to explain to us what it means for Jesus to be human. First, he tells us that He became nothing. And this is another one of those hotly debated terms, the Greek word kenosis there for emptied. It can be translated as emptied or gave up privileges or become powerless or rendered void. So what does Paul mean when he says that he emptied himself? Well, some people interpret this to say that he emptied himself of his divinity, that somehow Jesus set aside his qualities and attributes as God. Well, there's a little truth in that. It is true that in his incarnation, the full manifestation of Jesus' glory was hidden. It was veiled. He hid that glory away, which is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, when kind of that veil is pulled away and the disciples see the fullness of Jesus' glory that was always there, but was hidden, and they lose their minds. They tremble in fear. Peter doesn't know what he's saying. Jesus chose to veil, to hide that glory, to to restrict Himself for the sake of His mission. We see an example of this in the wilderness when Jesus denied using His powers to feed Himself, to turn stones into bread. We've seen already Jesus talked about how He obeyed the Father's will. He only taught what the Father told Him to do. The Holy Spirit empowered Him to perform the miracles He performed. But that doesn't mean that Jesus' humanity gobbled up His nature as God. No, And this is one of the earlier debates in Christian theology, this relationship between Jesus' divinity and His humanity. But the truth revealed in Scripture is plain, that Jesus is fully God and He's fully man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He is unique in all of creation. He is the God-man, 100% human and 100% divine. But that doesn't mean that we can use His divinity, kind of the other extreme, is that we might use His divinity as an excuse, right? People, you've heard people say, well, you know, that was Jesus. Or, he was God, right? You know, Jesus could do that. I can't do that. Yeah, Jesus never lost His temper, but I'm not Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear. We have the same commission as His ambassadors. He sends us out to make disciples for Him. He empowers us with the same Holy Spirit. You see, it is through Jesus' humanity that He not only identifies with us, but He gives us an example to follow. Yes, Jesus was 100% God, fully God, but He also was 100% human, fully human. Jesus 
sets an example for us because He is... The, the, the way in which God intended us to be human, He is fully human. He's more human than you and I. So if Paul isn't referring to Jesus laying aside His Godhood, then what does this verse mean that He emptied Himself? Well, I think it means that Jesus emptied Himself of self. It's not that Jesus poured out His divinity. It's that Jesus poured out Himself in service to us. Paul talks about this in, first, in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich for your sake, He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. He poured Himself out in humble service. So there in verse, uh, in verse 7, uh, the NIV translation captures this by saying He made Himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Or other translations say, he made himself of no reputation. So this speaks to both Jesus' humanity and his humility, which we'll look at in a few moments. He became nothing. But secondly, more specifically, how did he become nothing? By becoming a servant. He became a servant. Now, here's that word morphe again. When it says, by assuming the form, the morphe of a servant. Now remember, that word morphe... It means that Jesus is the exact representation of God. In essence, nature, and being, He is God. That's what the word morphe means. That, that from the inside out, Jesus is reflecting His true nature as God. So to say that He also took on the morphe, the form, the nature of a servant, has huge implications. Jesus, the ultimate expression of God, became the ultimate expression of a selfless Servant. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what a servant is like, look at Jesus. How amazing is it that the great God of the universe, the great I Am, the greatest example of limitless power, the omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful God is also the greatest example of lowliness and service. And Jesus was born in a manger to a Jewish girl raised by a, a, a carpenter, a simple craftsman. He, he stubbed his toe. He got hungry and thirsty and tired. The God who made the stars had to rub sticks together to make a fire to cook his food. He washed his disciples' feet. He fed the hungry. He visited with the grieving. He comforted and healed the sick. Jesus was in every way the perfect, true servant. He emptied Himself. He became nothing. He took on the form of a servant. And third, He became a man. Now Paul uses two similar phrases in verse 8 to explain Jesus' humanity. And the general idea is that the one who is equal with God also made Himself equal with man. In the same way that He is equal with God the Father, Jesus made Himself equal with man. The Greek word there is homoiona, which means image, being similar to, analogous to. So when it says that He had taken on the likeness of humanity, the idea is Jesus, the image of the invisible God, became the image of visible humanity. He reflects to us, as I said, the way people were created to be. That's why Paul calls Him the second Adam in 1 Corinthians. Through His incarnation, Jesus not only shows us what God is like, He not only shows us what servanthood is like, 
He shows us what humanity was always meant to be. He is analogous to, He is God's ideal and original intent for each and every one of us, which is why John wrote, whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. We can and should seek to live as Jesus did because He shows us the way God always meant for us to live. And so here Paul puts to rest any notion that Jesus is anything less than fully God and fully man. Which in verse 8 he says that he was found in appearance as a man. Now that's a Greek word called schema. That word schema is different from morphe. Schema is only used here and in one other place in all the New Testament. It means present form, shape, or structure. So as morphe is kind of the inner essence being manifested outwardly, schema is only talking about the outer appearance. Now, that's not meaning that Paul is saying that Jesus only appeared to be human. He's contrasting this. He's saying that while Jesus took on humanity, His inner essence, nature, and being never stopped being God. In other words, He is God in human flesh. That's what Paul is saying. But listen, Paul doesn't just stop with Jesus' humanity and the incarnation. I mean, that's quite a step down for the Almighty Creator, right? I mean... The infinitely holy God limiting Himself in time and space. That's something. But wait, there's more. Jesus not only became a man, He not only then became a servant, He then died a criminal's death on a Roman cross. So we've gone from Jesus' divinity to His humanity and now His humility, the death of God the Son. Look at verse 8. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. If you remember in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted in the same way Adam and Eve was tempted, but Satan wanted Jesus to, to, to not follow through with God's redemptive mission for him. But Jesus did what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He did what you and I failed to do. Jesus overcame every temptation he ever faced. He lived a sinless, perfect life, and that's why he could pay the price for our sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, The humanity of Jesus didn't want to face the coming torture and humiliation and shame and abandonment of the cross. And we see Him struggling in in, in that. He, He doesn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath you and I deserve to drink. But despite those feelings, Jesus chose to obey the Father, praying, not my will, but your will be done. And in that way, He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of humble, faithful obedience, loving and trusting the Father enough to hang on a Roman cross. When you think about it here, this passage in, in Philippians 2, 5-11, it's kind of a question of how low can you go, right? Not only did Jesus come down from heaven, divinity taking on humanity, the limitless God being in flesh and blood, Jesus didn't just become human, no, He became a servant. He became a slave, the lowliest of the lowly. He wasn't born to the wealthy, powerful, elite families of Jerusalem. He was born into poverty and obscurity. And Jesus wasn't just born to live as one of us and identify with us. He came to die for us. And it wasn't just any death. It was the lowliest of the lowest deaths, the most painful and disgraceful of deaths. He hung on a cross between two thieves. And a Roman crucifixion was one of the most just shameful, humiliating, painful, excruciating forms of execution. And that is how Jesus chose to redeem us from sin, to make us holy, to give us the promise of eternal life 
Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6 that Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus not only shows us humility and obedience to the Father, He reveals to us the love of the Father as Paul goes on in verse 8 to say that God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took your place and mine on that cross, dying like a sinner so that we could take His place in heaven and live in righteousness. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In our New Testament reading, Peter described how Jesus died for our sins without any deceit without insulting or, or firing back or, 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 or threatening His accusers and His executioners, Jesus went humbly and willingly to the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so in, in verse 21 there, Peter gives us a challenge. He says that if we identify with Jesus, if we take advantage of this amazing gift of grace given to us at such a great cost, then we're called to this. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Jesus set us an example, not only in His humanity, not only in His servanthood, but in His obedience and humility. So, so Paul has been talking about how Jesus came down, down, down in, in further forms of submission and humility, but now we shift the focus to how Jesus went up, up, up in greater glory and majesty. We've looked at His divinity his humanity, His humility on the cross. But then Paul takes us to His majesty through the resurrection, ascension, and the return of the Son of God. Look at verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name above every name. It is because Jesus came to earth and was humble and obedient and died on the cross that the Father now glorifies the Son. And Jesus prayed for this in John seventeen five. Jesus prayed before He went to the cross, and now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory I had with You before the world began. So God exalted Him. Now this word right here that it says in verse 9 that God highly exalted Him, this is a Greek word that's only used here in all the New Testament. And it's hyperipsu. It means to raise, to exalt exceedingly, to give exceptional honor to and God the Father did all three of those for God the Son. He raised Him up. He gave Him exceeding honor and exalted Him. First, He did that by raising Jesus from the dead. Making Him the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have the supremacy, as Paul writes in Colossians 1.18. The resurrection of Jesus is another one of those essential truths of Christianity. Without the resurrection, Christianity doesn't work. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus isn't alive today, then our faith is futile. It's in vain. It's useless. We are hopeless. And we are to be pitied more than anyone else. The resurrection is essential. And the implications of that are endless. But they include the completion of Jesus' redemptive work. The Father's divine approval on the Son. His resurrection is the very basis and hope for our resurrection and eternal life. It's the symbolism behind baptism and it's the very reason we worship on Sundays. And I'll talk more about this on Easter Sunday. So I hope you come on Easter Sunday. But after Jesus' resurrection was His ascension, so He was raised from the dead, then He was raised to heaven in the ascension. So, so just as Jesus descended 
in, in ever more humbler forms of submission, so he now ascends to greater glory and majesty and honor to the highest place, to the right hand of the Father. As Hebrews 1.3 goes on to say, we looked at the first half of that, the second half says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And Paul tells us here in verse 11, that God bestowed upon Jesus the name above every name. And what is that name? It's the name Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's think about that. Jesus refers to His humanity. His incarnation is coming to earth for His redemptive mission. Christ refers to His authority, that Jesus fulfills all Scripture. He is the promised Messiah who would come and fulfill all things. And the Lord speaks to His divinity, that He is the Creator, He is the Ruler of all, He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And it's at this name that someday all knees will bow in humble submission, recognizing His ultimate and eternal authority. It is this name that someday every tongue will confess, acknowledging who He is. And that someday will be when Jesus Christ returns to consummate all of history, to judge the living and the dead, and to make all things new. Revelation 19.16, John writes, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, points forward to this day of the Lord when Christ returns in judgment and to make all things new. In the New Testament alone, His return is referenced nearly 400 times. And when Jesus comes again, He will restore the world to His original goodness. God will dwell with His people forever. Jesus' divinity, His humanity, His incarnation, His humility, His crucifixion on the cross, His majesty, and His resurrection, ascension, and His someday return. I think Paul pretty much captures it all right here, doesn't he? But the question I leave for us today is what difference does it make? What we end every sermon with this. What difference do these truths make in our lives? Well, just think about it. The eternal, holy, creator God stepped down into creation. Divinity took on humanity and lived among us as one of us and died to pay the price for our sins, thus defeating sin, was raised from the dead, thus defeating death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us every day, and He's coming again to make all things new. What difference doesn't that make? Jesus makes all the difference in the world. But first, you must be submitted to Him, to His Lordship in your life. You must be in Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1-4, he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts. He's writing to believers. You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, meaning that we've died to our sins. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Have you been hidden with Christ in God? Does His appearance strike hope in your heart or dread? Will you appear with Him in glory or stand before Him in judgment? It all depends on what you have done with Jesus. What have you done with these truths we've talked about this morning? 
Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you Listen, you will, you will bow your knee and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can either do it now and become a child of God and be forgiven and filled with the joy and the abundance that He gives, or you can do it at the judgment seat. And He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But someday you will confess that He is Lord. I pray you do it today if you've never done that before. Here in a moment I'll be standing right here. This Jesus, who has always been God and will always be God, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, loves you so much that He poured Himself out in humbleness and service. The infinite God limited Himself to a human body. He suffered a cruel death on the cross. As we sang about today, He took your blame. He bore your wrath. He suffered it all on the cross for you because He loves you. Have you responded to that gift of grace? I pray you would do it today and know that you belong to Him and know that when He returns or when you leave this world, you will stand before Him forgiven of your sins. I pray you can say that. But for those of you that do know Jesus, you do know you're hidden with Christ and God, you do belong to Him, what kind of difference is that making in the way you live your life? Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, Paul says, look, to belong to Jesus means I've died to sin and self. I've been crucified with Christ and He has given me a new life. It's His life that's living through me. Belonging to Jesus isn't just about going to heaven when you die. It's about following in the footsteps of Christ on this earth. It's about living every day like Jesus is your Lord. Or as Paul writes here, look back at Philippians chapter 2. Paul proceeds this great, amazing passage we've looked at today. He proceeds it with these words. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same mind, in other words, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, He emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Paul is saying the difference Jesus should make in our life is that we should have His attitude. An attitude of pouring ourselves out in service. An attitude of not thinking only of ourselves, but thinking of other people. Putting other people first. Living in humility. Understanding this isn't all about me. The world doesn't revolve around me. It's about Him. And I need to have an outward focus in how I live. That's what He means. That's the difference this makes in our lives. Are you living in the way of Christ? Do you follow the example He has set for you? Does Jesus make a difference in the way you treat others? In the way you spend your time and your money? And the things you let yourself think about. What difference is Christ making in your life today? I'll be standing here at the front to receive you if you want to come and 
recommit yourself to following Jesus, to walking in His way. If you want to come and say, David, I need, I need to know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I don't know that He is. Or you want to come and say, yes, I've prayed and received Christ and I want to make that public and I want to be baptized and follow in His footsteps. Maybe God is calling you and your family down with our church. Maybe you just need to come to this altar and spend some time in prayer before Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whatever God is speaking to you, let's be obedient to Him. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, thank You for the truth of the Gospel that we've looked at today. That Christ came, He lived, He died, He rose from the dead, He ascended to the, Your right hand, Father, and He's coming again in power and glory. That is the source of our hope. That is the foundation of our faith and our lives. And Father, if there's anyone here who has any question about that, has any doubt about where they stand before You, I pray they would come today and settle their relationship with You once and for all. Father, those of us that are in Christ, that do know You as our Lord and Savior, Jesus, challenge us, convict us of where we are straying from that path where we're not walking in Your footsteps, where we're not striving every day to be more like You, to love like You, to serve like You, to be selfless like You. Help us, Jesus to be more conformed to your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.